Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Dara Horn is angry, and the award-winning author of five novels wants you to know why. This week, she's sitting down with my guest co-host, Laura Shaw Frank, AJC's Director of Contemporary Jewish Life, to discuss why people love dead Jews. People Love Dead Jews also happens to be the title of Dara's first work of nonfiction. Laura has been eager to ask Dara what that means for those of us Jews who are still living. Laura, the mic is yours. Dara Horn, welcome to People of the Pod. Thanks so much for having me. So from the moment I heard the title of your new book, People Love Dead Jews, I was unnerved and uncomfortable, as I'm sure many were. I was also deeply fascinated. It's actually, I have to say, really one of the most powerful books I've read in years. I've heard you speak a little bit about what led to the writing of this book, and I'd love to have you share that a little with our audience. Sure. Well, I first started thinking about this topic in 2018 when I was asked by Smithsonian Magazine to write an essay for them about Anne Frank. And I got that request and I just felt filled with dread because my first thought was, wow, I really don't want to write about Anne Frank. And what I've noticed in my career as a writer is that the uncomfortable moments are often the ones where the story is, whether it's where I go in my imagination or where I go in my research or you know just in my own experiences. And so Instead of doing the logical thing, like turn this assignment down, I'm a writer, I'm not a logical person. I was sort of just thinking, why do I feel so uncomfortable with this? You know, what is it that I don't want to do here? I then remembered a news item that I had read about the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam, which is, you know, this office building where Anne Frank and her family and other people were being hidden, were hiding from the Nazis during World War II. You know, that building is now this like blockbuster museum in Amsterdam that, you know, before COVID had, I don't know, two million visitors a year. And I had read a news item in 2018 about a young Jewish employee at this museum. The museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. And he appealed this decision to the board of the museum, which then deliberated for four months and then relented and let him wear his yarmulke to work. And I just remember reading that news story and thinking, you know, Four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And I thought, you know, there's something going on here, right? Like, this is not really, I mean, it might be a PR mishap, but it's not a mistake. And, you know, I just realized, as I put it in the first line of my piece that I wrote for Smithsonian, which is the first chapter of this book, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. And... After that piece came out, it was in one of the fall issues for Smithsonian in 2018. It was just a couple days after that article came out that we had the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Within hours of that attack, the New York Times called me and was like, can you write about this? I became, as I put it in the book, the New York Times' go-to person for the emerging literary genre of synagogue shooting op-eds. This was not a job I applied for. And, you know, I just started thinking, like, I realized at that point, you know, that a lot of my mainstream editors at mainstream publications, I was always being asked to write about dead Jews. And, you know, I, again, thought like, well, that's unfortunate, (laughs) right? I'm a person who has a PhD in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. I've published five novels about Jewish life. And so I decided just to lean right into this, like, why is this happening? 
and just to report back what I found there. And what I basically discovered is like Jews play this role in the larger world's imagination. And basically people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. And that's basically what I'm exposing in this book. So yeah, if you find the title disturbing, you're going to be even more disturbed by what's inside the book. Indeed. I'm a Jewish historian, so I guess by definition that means I love dead Jews. I mean, who doesn't, right? Exactly. I also have a weird obsession with Jewish cemeteries. I love them. I visit them all the time. I think part of it is that when I'm in Europe, visiting Jews in a cemetery where they actually have a gravestone and were buried properly is a huge win because Jews in Europe are often not buried in cemeteries with proper gravestones. But I think I love Jewish cemeteries so much because to me, it kind of feels like I'm visiting the people who were buried there. I try to figure out what their lives were like. Were they observant? What languages did they speak? Were they married? Were they parents? Were they immigrants? I kind of almost feel like I'm resurrecting them when I visit them. But as I was reading People Love Dead Jews, I found myself thinking a lot about how we as Jews memorialize the past and use it to inform our present. And of course, it's a theme of so many of our holidays. And it's a theme particularly of the new commemorations that arose in the 20th century, like Yom HaShoah and Israel Memorial Day, Yom HaZikaron. So I wanted to ask you, how do you differentiate between respecting and honoring the memory of dead Jews and the more kind of insidious and problematic love of dead Jews? So I am absolutely not saying people should not be, you know, honoring the past. There's two things going on here. One is, you know, you mentioned, oh, I visit these Jewish cemeteries. In one of my chapters in the book is about what I call Jewish heritage sites, which is about, you know, this tourist industry that has grown up around these like places where Jews don't live anymore. And the reason Jews don't live there anymore is generally not for positive reasons. Like these people mostly did not voluntarily leave. And, you know, as I put it in the book, like Jewish heritage sites, it's a brilliant marketing term because it sounds so much better than property seized from dead or expelled Jews. And what you just described about, you know, imagining these people's lives and not just imagining these people's lives, but doing research into finding out how these people lived. That is the difference. So I'll give you this example that, as I said, I published five novels. I've spoken many times about my books. I used to ask this question to audiences of readers where I would ask people, how many people here can name four concentration camps? And then I would ask those same people, how many of these same people can name four Yiddish writers? 80% of the people who were murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. This is a famously literary culture. And I'm asking this question, you know, why do we care so much about the details of how these people died if we do not care at all about how these people lived. And so to me, that's sort of the more interesting question is the perversity of a lot of this kind of memorialization of dead Jews is that their identity as Jews is erased in the process. They become this like symbol of humanity or something like that. And there is no interest in how these people lived. On my podcast, I have the first episode of Adventures with Dead Jews. There's a part that's about the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And there's just a part that's about the children's exhibit there. And it's called Daniel's Story. You walk through this boy's house in Frankfurt, Germany. You see his soccer team's trophies and his father's war medals. And, you know, I remember going to that exhibit as a teenager and then being sort of getting into an argument with a Holocaust survivor about it who sort of said to me, like, why is it this like German speaking soccer playing kid as a symbol of what's lost in the Holocaust? You know, this was an entire culture that was destroyed, right? Like a kid on the soccer team is not what died in the Holocaust, even if individuals who were on the soccer team died. In the it's like, why do we have this kid's soccer trophies? Why don't we have his 
copies of the Mishnah? Why don't we have his scouting uniform from his socialist scouting club? Why don't we have his songbooks from his Zionist youth group, right? Why do we have dad's war medals? Why don't we have dad's tefillin? Or why don't we have dad's tickets to the Yiddish theater, right? I mean, this was like a vast Yiddish-speaking culture that was destroyed, you know, and while there are still communities that speak Yiddish and there are still people who practice different forms of Judaism, what we don't have anymore, what was destroyed, was like a vast Yiddish-speaking culture that encompassed all different types of Jewish approaches, you know, secular Jews, religious Jews, people from lots of different political orientations, you know, with a robust literary culture. Like, that's what was killed. That's what was murdered. And it's like, you know, we erase that. And I think you see that same, like, dishonoring of living Jews in a lot of what I've explored in the book. I agree 100%. And I'm wondering if you agree with me about this. I think that sometimes we inside the Jewish community can fall into the same trap. It's not just an external thing. I mean, obviously, Jews were very involved in the creation of the United States Holocaust Museum. But I think that we internally sometimes fall into that trap of this problematic version of loving dead Jews and not sort of looking at them as full people. Have you seen that? So there's a couple things going on here. I do think the way that the American Jewish community has chosen to like present the Holocaust to a largely non-Jewish audience, I think there were like strategic reasons for doing that, which made sense at the time. I think there was this belief, like when a lot of these museums were built in the 1990s, for example, that there really was this sort of like hopefulness that there was this idea that like educating people about the Holocaust would like prevent anti-Semitism, right? People would go to these museums and see what the world had done to the Jews, see where hatred could lead, and then they would stop hating Jews. It wasn't a ridiculous idea, but I think that like, you know, 25 or 30 years later, we can kind of evaluate whether or not this was effective. And I don't know that it is. You know, I think levels of these anti-Semitic incidents are a lot higher now than they were when these museums were built. So, I mean, I think it is worth reevaluating that. I think there's like a larger problem with education, which goes, though, far beyond the Jewish community and far beyond anything the Jewish community could do, which is, you know, the way that Jews are really used in the non-Jewish imagination. And that affects things like education, you know, like social studies textbook in public school. What does it say about Jews? There's a paragraph at the beginning about the Israelites. We don't even mention that those are Jews. You know, those are just like dead people from long ago, you know, like, I don't know, Phoenicians. And then we have a chapter at the end about the Holocaust. So where, you know, dead Jews are just like kind of a metaphor for how low humanity can sink. And, you know, they teach us a nice lesson about the limits of civilization. But like, there's nowhere here where we're talking about the riches of Jewish civilization. There's nowhere here where we're talking about what this truly amazing story of Judaism as a counterculture that like runs through all of Western civilization. And really, if we were to teach people, that would completely upend what we think about the history of the West. So, I mean, you know, that's a kind of a bigger topic than what you asked about. I also think, you know, it, within the Jewish community, stories about the past are used in a really different way. Yes, it's built into the religion since the Book of Lamentations that there is this sort of like long Jewish engagement, you know, not just with like dead Jews, but with calamities of the past, right? I mean, we have whole pieces of our liturgy that are devoted to this, but within the Jewish community, it serves a theological function. It's a contact point in a covenant with God, which, you know, is a much bigger topic than we can get into here. But it's also, you know, the whole Talmud is sort of this like reaction to a calamity, right? Like the whole sort of foundation of rabbinic Judaism is about recreating something, you know, after the destruction of the temple. It's like, you've been through this situation where your whole life has been upended. What do you do next? I think that is an amazing model, not just for Jews, but for humanity of what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth. You know, what do you do with calamity in, and trauma? And how do you 
incorporate that into who you are and grow from it. So, I mean, there's a lot of productive ways to talk about the past. What's not productive is this requirement, which I go into the book in detail about how Jews are required to erase part of their identity in order to participate in public conversations or to earn public respect. I actually think that piece of the book made me think so much, that theme of the book made me think so much about, do I do that? You know, I really did think about how much anti-Semitism have I internalized? How much of that trope of having to erase my own identity have I internalized? And I'm a pretty out there Jew. So that was a very, very powerful message for me. So I want to turn a little bit to some of the themes that you were just talking about. You're an author, not an activist, but I felt that your book was in many ways a call to action. Your anger is very palpable in the book. And I love your sarcasm, actually, because I think it brings out that anger in a really, not easy, but it's, it's a way that makes it land well. AJC is an advocacy organization. In an ideal world, we all know that it should not be the responsibility of Jews to fight and eradicate anti-Semitism. But as we all know, it's a task that we have to carry out because no one else is going to do it. So I'm wondering, what should Jewish advocates take away from your book? So the first thing is clarity, because, you know, as you said, you mentioned this like internalized anti-Semitism. I think a lot of people would say, oh, I don't have any. Think about the way we often will talk to a non-Jewish public about anti-Semitic attacks. We often will use this language of like, oh, Jews are the canary in the coal mine. You know, when Jews are attacked, that's a sign of the decline of society. It's a problem for all of us. Think about how much you are denigrating your own humanity to say that. Think about how you are really degrading yourself to say that, because what you are basically saying is, you should care when Jews are murdered or maimed, because when Jews are murdered or maimed, it might be an ominous sign that real people might later get attacked. So that's one example of it. Another example is clarity around the way we think about anti-Semitic attacks. You know, I think that, you know, after an attack like the shooting in Pittsburgh, you had this like huge outpouring of support because these were people just like us. And this is this lesson that we are often taught, you know, again, in a broader non-Jewish context, or when Jews are sort of trying to spread this message in a broader non-Jewish context is like, the way to not be bigoted is to teach people that, you know, oh, Jews or whoever else is like, these people are just like you and me. Well, the problem with that is that Jews have spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else, right? That's kind of the premise of Judaism. You know, uncoolness is kind of Judaism's brand. We started out as like the first people to believe in the bossy and unsexy invisible God. That wasn't cool. Like we've never been cool. And you see the effects of this internalized, I do think you're correct that it's internalized anti-Semitism in the way that the press reports attacks on the Hasidic community. I write in the book about these lethal attacks on the Hasidic community that happened right before the pandemic. There was a shooting at a kosher grocery store in a Satmar community in Jersey City, a Hasidic community. I almost couldn't find a news report about those attacks that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked while reporting the attack. So, you know, you read this about this Jersey City shooting and every single article is like, well, you know, these Hasidic Jews were, you know, gentrifying a minority neighborhood. And it's like, first of all, these are highly visible members of the world's most historically persecuted minority, who, by the way, were themselves fleeing gentrification because the reason they were in Jersey City is because they got priced out of Brooklyn. But also, are people really that enraged about gentrification? Like, are people walking into blue bottle coffee outlets with automatic weapons and blowing away white hipsters? Because 
I haven't seen that happen. And so I have a feeling this is not about gentrification, right? Or like, you know, with this like attack on the Hasidic community in Muncie, New York, like every single news article is like, well, you know, there were these zoning battles between, you know, Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents. Oh, you know, they had this big fight last year over the school board. And I'm like, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? Because, you know, silly me, I left mine at home when I went to the last school board meeting. And I realized the reason these attacks are being reported that way, the only reason to talk about it in this way is to send a signal to the public that these people deserve it. That's what's going on. And I will tell you that people who are attacking the Hasidic community, they're not doing it because they disagree with Hasidic practice and belief. They're doing it because these people are visible. And so, you know, you're telling yourself some kind of lie about why this is happening. That's what needs to end, right? That's the self-erasure that I talk about in the book. You know, hide your yarmulke under a baseball hat because, like, we love Anne Frank, but we don't love, like, you know, yucky Jews who are doing yucky stuff, you know, like practicing Judaism. I want to turn for a moment to talk about Israel. So the May flare-up between Hamas and Israel and Hamas was sending all the missiles into Israel was very much on my mind as I read your book. I was thinking about the attacks on visible Jews, not necessarily Haredi Jews, but just Jews who were wearing a chai necklace or kippah or looked Jewish that occurred during that month. I was also thinking about the United Nations, which has this special Memorial Day for the Holocaust in January, but never misses an opportunity to call out Israel in a way that is vastly disproportionate with any criticism it levies against any other country. And we know Israel, of course, is not a perfect country. No country is perfect. And of course, we also know Israel's population also includes lots of non-Jews. But do you think that some of the vitriol thrown Israel's way is linked to this notion of the world not really liking live Jews all that much? I mean, it's the Jewish country. I mean, all of it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. The short answer is yes, all of it. It's exactly what you see. So it's like, I would just honestly say, you know, at this point, what we're really seeing is like concern trolling. This like, you know, pretext of concern about whatever is happening in Israel is basically just used as a tool to harass diaspora Jews. And that doesn't mean that there aren't problems in Israel. Kind of like how there are problems in America. Like when a kid on TikTok posts Shabbat Shalom and then is flooded with like hashtags free Palestine. That's not a discussion about Israel. That's not what's happening here. The concern about actually people who live in Israel in that conversation is no greater than like medieval blood libels where did they really care about the toddler who drowned in the river that week? Like, no, it wasn't really about the toddler who drowned in the river that week. No, this is being used for something else. So very similar dynamic to, you know, dead Jews are this metaphor. So there's something else going on in these conversations. When you look at the way that this is presented, it has almost nothing to do with what's actually going on in Israel. And yeah, like yoga instructors on Instagram who are, you know, attacking some teenager who like posts a picture of their challah. This isn't about what's going on in Israel. Or even their picture of their Israeli flag that they have hung up in their bedroom. <laughs> yeah, this is, again, Jews playing a role in the wider world's imagination, you know, that has a real discomfort with living Jews. That's what it is, right? I mean, it's that, you know, people love dead Jews. It's like Jews are only acceptable basically if they're powerless, right? Which means, you know, either dead or politically impotent, right? If Jews are dead or politically impotent, then they're fine. Once they are alive and have any kind of power or accountability, it's like that makes people very uncomfortable. Indeed. I think those are very wise words about power and life. I wanted to ask you about other groups. So this summer, my husband and I went to South Dakota. And by the way, I managed to find a Jewish cemetery there. 
it was awesome. But leaving the Jewish cemetery aside, that whole state is filled with stories of and memorials to dead Native Americans. And I saw nothing that discussed live Native Americans, nothing about their current culture, their current struggles, their current triumphs. And in many ways, I actually think that we Americans love dead Native Americans too. We name our cities after them, our states after them, we name our summer camps after them, we mythologize them in every single way. We try to emulate them or what we perceive them to be. But as a society, we ignore living Native Americans. And I think that's probably true for other minority groups too, ethnic or religious groups, et cetera. And I wanted to know if you think that that comparison is apt. And are dead Jews somehow different? And I'll tell you that I'm asking this question because we at AJC do a lot of intergroup and interfaith work. And we try to partner with other groups on issues of common concern and themes of common problems in society that we can work on together. I think it's absolutely the same problem. Yes, there's a fetishization of dead Native Americans in exactly the same way, you know, in really ugly ways and even in sort of supposedly benign ways, but doing the same thing and having the same effect of erasing lived experience. And they play a role, right, in this cultural narrative that has, like, very little to do with, like, actual Native Americans and actually living Native Americans. Absolutely very similar. I think it's very similar for a lot of minorities. I mean, I will tell you that, like, the thing is that we pay tribute to diversity in order to force people to conform. Diversity means we want lots of different people who all see things our way, right? That's this lip service to diversity. And basically what that means is that anyone who's not in a position of traditional power is expected to erase some part of themselves in order to participate in the conversation. They have to somehow edit themselves. So that's like this, you know, Jews of the canary in the coal mine, like making that argument in order to get allies, right? Like erasing yourself in order to get allies is like an example of that. I feel this often as a woman. I'll tell you that, you know, I've been speaking about my books for 20 years. I know as a woman that Every time I give a public lecture, whether in front of an audience or, you know, here on Zoom or wherever I am, that even when I'm saying something pretty grim, which I often am, I know that I always have to smile during all my public lectures. I have to be constantly smiling because my job as a woman is to make men comfortable. And I think that many groups are in this position where their job is to make other people feel comfortable, right? That's why I give my book this title, People Love Dead Jews. My goal is not to make people feel comfortable, right? I think that's the problem, is the the requirement that we make others feel comfortable in order to accept us. I think that that is a big part of the problem. And I think that that's something that, you know, we're having a national conversation now about racial justice in this country, about the way we think about the evils of the past in this country. And I think that Jews have thousands of years of experience and wisdom about this topic and have a lot to bring to the table in this conversation. The problem is Jews are also dealing with part of the prejudice against Jews is this mythology that, oh, Jews already have so much power. That's the whole basis of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is the Jews have power. And we have a lot to contribute to these kinds of conversations because, as I said, you know, we have thousands of years of experience of what it's like to be erased. And, you know, hopefully we have something to contribute about how to push back against that and to make the country richer, too, because I think that, you know, this sort of lip service like diversity where it's like, you know, diversity means, you know, Benetton, where you got a lot of people who like have different shades of skin, but all agree on everything. That's not diversity. Indeed. That is very well said and really illuminates a lot of the work that we try to do with other groups. So that makes so much sense and resonates a great deal for me. So I want to thank you so, so much for joining us today. Dara Horn is the author of People Love Dead Jews. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me.
Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me is this week's guest host, Laura. Thank you so much for that conversation with Dara. Hi, Manya. It was such a fascinating conversation. I have to tell you, I've been thinking about it so much. And her book and the conversation has just got me thinking about the importance of Jewish history education and what it means to study the Jewish past in a way that fosters that resilience that she talks about and pride in active Jewish life rather than getting trapped in that dead Jews obsession that she so cogently points out. And I think you know this about me. I've been a Jewish history educator for almost 20 years, and I'm really awed, really, by the power of Jewish history to foster and nurture a strong Jewish identity. I used to teach Jewish history in a high school, in a Jewish day school, and the students used to bring all their angst about figuring out their Jewish identities into my classroom. They loved the fact that their questions about faith, about modernity, about what it means to be a Jew in the secular world had been discussed by Jews for centuries. They loved the debates. They loved the art. They loved the music. They loved the culture. They loved the tradition. They felt like they could see themselves in the past, and they understood their Jewish identity so much better, seeing where they had come from and what they had emerged from. They loved that their questions were kosher, quote unquote, questions that others had asked before them. And they loved seeing themselves as part of a larger Jewish story. And to me, that's the kind of Jewish history education that we need. I think a lot of people you know, seek that place in the larger Jewish story. You're reminding me of a conversation I had just this past weekend with the mother of one of my son's friends. And she brought up that as a young girl, she immersed herself in Holocaust literature. And I asked her why. And her response was, well, because I was Jewish and I wasn't Jewish. She had not been raised Jewish, and most of her Jewish ancestors were gone. So her touchstones, the way she accessed her Jewish identity, were books by authors such as Anne Frank and Elie Wiesel. And I found this fascinating. I was quite impressed that she had immersed herself in this kind of literature, that she had, had sought it out. But also I was a bit sad and sad that such a tragic aspect of our history was her connection her primary connection to her Jewish heritage. At the same time, this is a woman who has faced some mighty challenges in adulthood, and her resilience astounds me. And that makes me wonder if the Jewish tradition of, I think Dara called it post-traumatic growth, I wondered if it was that, if she had been inspired by this literature, or perhaps it was just in her Jewish DNA. <laughs> I love that, her Jewish DNA. I'm guessing both. Because God knows that Anne Frank and Elie Wiesel both model unbelievable resilience. And I also kind of do think that it is a bit in our Jewish DNA because this notion of resilience, of post-traumatic growth, goes back thousands of years in Jewish history. And I have to imagine it has had some impact. You know, if people can carry trauma in their DNA, as we now know from scientists, certainly they can carry resilience, I think, too. And I echo the fact that it's both fascinating and sad that she connected to the Holocaust as her primary connection to Jewish heritage. And I think that that's partially due to the fact that that's really what's accessible in mainstream America about what it means to be Jewish. I think that it is important for us as proud Jews, as educated Jews, to change that conversation. And by that, I don't mean at all giving up on the memory of the Holocaust. It's critical that we remember the Holocaust and that we remember the six million Kedoshim, the holy ones that died and were murdered by the Nazis. There's no question that that is so, so important. 
But it's also, and it's also so important that our Jewish identity is filled with the way Jews lived and not just how they died. And the many, many thousands of years of really amazing, robust Jewish conversations, Jewish ritual, Jewish culture that can inform who we are as Jews today. I also really appreciated Dara's point that she made about when we talk about the Holocaust, we often focus on the destruction of humanity, the six million killed in the Holocaust at the expense of talking about the loss of Jewish life and Jewish religious traditions. I mean, even the most well-intentioned memorial and educational efforts, she talked about how they reduced the role religion played in those lives. And that's something that religion reporters confront every day in newsrooms across the country, probably around the world. I mean, religion plays a role on every beat, plays a role in politics and education and entertainment. And yet, so many of my journalistic colleagues just don't want to go there. It's uncomfortable. But they need to go there because if they don't, they might not fully understand what they're writing about. Religion plays such a vital role. And now I understand she was making the point that people are uncomfortable emphasizing the Jewish religion for fear they might turn people off or for fear that they might care less. But as you said, as she said, Judaism has so much to teach us about resilience. And that's, I would say, a pretty important lesson for all of us coming out of a pandemic. Indeed. I keep on thinking to myself as I'm hearing you speak that, yes, there is this feeling that Dara Horn so correctly points out and that you're pointing out as well, that we want to avoid talking about proud Judaism in the public sphere. And we've got to change that. It is so important for us to embrace that pride, to stand up tall and to not be afraid to be proudly Jewish in all the ways that people are Jewish. And I think that, you know, there's a fear in America in general about talking about religion because it's 2021 and religion is a fraught topic. And in many ways, the society is becoming less and less religious. So people don't like to talk about it because it feels too controversial. And on top of that, this notion that there's some kind of embarrassment to talk about our own Jewish identities, it's kind of a little bit of a toxic brew. I used to be involved with this organization called Centropa. It's a wonderful organization that memorializes Jewish life in Central Europe before the Holocaust. And their whole tagline is, learn how they lived, not only how they died. So I want to kind of leave us with that, with this rich history that we should be proud to proclaim, to study, and to own. And the more that we study that history, I think maybe the prouder that we'll be. The more we immerse ourselves in it, the more we have ownership of it, the more we'll be able to stand up and wear that mantle with pride and get away from the bad way of talking about dead Jews that Dara Horn is calling out for us. Yes, indeed. Well, I cannot wait to introduce this book to the mother of my son's friend, who is fast becoming my friend. And thank you for starting this conversation with Dara, Laura, and um, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. In case you missed it, be sure to check out both of last week's episodes on the European Union's long-awaited strategy to combat anti-Semitism and how to sue a Nazi. Both episodes launched our October focus on the rise of anti-Semitism around the world. Next week features another pair of episodes. Tune in live at noon Tuesday as we partner with Tablet Magazine's podcast, Unorthodox, to talk about anti-Semitism in the UK. You can register to watch at ajc.org slash advocacyanywhere. Later that week, we'll bring you an emotional conversation with Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto as he walks us through the reality he faced on October 27, 2018. 
and the days that followed the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Ku Kong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.